while on paper, the number of licensed payday lenders dropped to zero, also on paper, the number of licensed pawnbrokers increased, the number of licensed small loan lenders increased, and the, surprisingly, the number of second mortgage lenders increased as well. So this was maybe some cursory evidence that payday lenders were not extracting themselves from the market, but maybe finding different avenues to actually continue operation, either as a payday loan or in a similar industry like pawnbroking. Meet Stephanie Ramirez, an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Idaho. Payday loan companies offer people quick cash with extremely high interest rates. Some states have enacted various regulations of these businesses in an attempt to protect the clients. Stephanie's investigations look into how these types of businesses are coping with the new laws. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at the University of Idaho, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at U of I. Throughout the fourth season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we'll talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Stephanie and I talked about the effects of regulation on the payday loan industry and how payday loan companies keep a step ahead of the laws, even in states where they may not be allowed to exist. Hey, Stephanie. Thank you so much for uh, giving me a call today and coming on The Vandal Theory. Can you introduce yourself to everyone for me? Sure. My name is Stephanie Ramirez. I am an assistant professor at the U of I, and I teach economics. Now, you came on today to talk to me about something very specific. You study payday loans, and we'll get into all the intricacies of exactly which parts you work on. But first, for everybody out there, can you tell me exactly what is a payday loan? Absolutely. So a payday loan is, in a general sense, known as an alternative financial service. So we are looking at financial services that are not offered by a traditional bank or a credit card company, for instance, which we're all pretty familiar with. A payday loan itself is a short-term, high-interest, small-amount loan. They're usually between $500 to $1,000, lasting between two weeks to a month. But with those characteristics, the interest calculated on these loans tends to be as high as 400%, even as high as 1,000%. And when you're comparing it to a traditional credit product that's capped at 36%, it looks like an extreme price. And this is where a lot of attention is brought to these loans. They're called payday loans because the payment for this loan is usually deducted from your next paycheck. Hmm. This is the sort of cycle of lending here. Okay. So these are the, you need something quick and for short term, this is not long-term student loans and, and, and car loans and stuff like that, per se. Correct. So by design, they shouldn't be. But this is where, looking at consumer behavior, this is where they may be being used outside of how they were designed to be used, if that makes sense. So how did you get involved with studying payday loans? So it was about 2007 when I was working for the Federal Reserve Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. after I graduated uh, with my undergraduate degree. My first project was to research the state-level policy 
surrounding payday lending, and also to look up and verify operating branch locations across the country. I was able to see what policy environments existed, but also look at where these firms were operating in. And I started to notice sort of a pattern in their location choices. And that just naturally brought up a lot of questions. Why are lenders locating where they are? You know, are these patterns consistent across different states? And, you know, given that it's state level regulation, you essentially have 50 natural experiments going on when it comes to the development and the evolution of this industry. Additionally, I was working in DC and for the Fed during the financial crisis. And so, questions surrounding financial service markets, especially alternative financial service markets, more of these questions were being asked about who utilizes these loans, but I wanted to know who was providing these loans and how were they operating. And so that's how I started to get into payday lending as an industry to be researched. So you're touching on sort of my next question. You finished up your job there and went into research And it seems like you, instead of looking at the customer side of things, have really focused on the providers. Why why did you pick the providers as sort of your area of focus? That's a great question. So there's a lot of research that had already been done and continues to be done about consumer welfare for payday loan borrowers. And these are questions that need to be asked and continuously revisited. You know, what is the state of the borrower in this industry? But what I noticed was that while research was focused on the consumer, new policy and updated policy, it was always imposed on the firm and limiting what firms could do when offering these loans. But there was a research desert, essentially. There was no real analysis done trying to understand the supply side of this industry. And in order to have a market, you have to have a demand side and also a supply side. And so there was an opportunity there to fill in the gap and fill in the empty spaces in such a researched industry and an industry that got a lot of policy attention, a lot of media attention, but really nothing was done to understand how these firms behaved when it came to policy changes, when it comes to interacting with customers. And so there was an opportunity to provide some answers where no answers had been provided before. So talk to me about some of the things that maybe you noticed at the Fed and that kind of fed into your work? And then we can start talking about some of the things you've found since you started doing this research. What's kind of one of the first things that you noticed about patterns of where these guys were hanging out? Right. So when I had to verify locations, which in practice, it's, it was literally just going to Google Maps to verify an address and to make sure that the coordinates were pointing to the actual branch itself, I noticed that a lot of these non-traditional lenders were located near, for instance, elderly care facilities or hospitals or even universities, which I found very, very interesting. So what that signaled to me was that these firms were locating close to customers, not necessarily where they lived, but where they might have experienced these shortfalls in income, right, which is what this product was designed to supplement. If you're getting your car repaired, right, sometimes that's a surprise expense. With an older population or a student population, this is a demographic that is naturally more income constrained and would likely have to demand a short-term credit product like a payday loan. And so with that type of sort of coincidence in location, 
it was, okay, so what does this look like on a, a larger scale, on a national scale? And so that's when I sort of embarked on collecting this location and state level policy data. And it was a lot of sort of work on the ground, so to speak, right? And it sort of answered the question as to why there wasn't a lot of research here. There, there was a lot of work involved in collecting and cleaning individual branch level data across different states for different periods of time. I can imagine, especially with the fact that, you know, every state has so many different rules in the way they, they talk about these payday That's right. uh, loans. And that actually kind of moves me into my next question in the fact that you found out once you started doing the research that there was payday loan offices in states that didn't allow payday loan offices, but somehow there they were. Life found a way. <laughs> yes. So one of my first studies was looking at what happens when a state decides to ban, outright ban, payday lending. And what motivated the study, I did my graduate work in Arizona, and Arizona went through a similar ban. On paper, payday loans were no longer legal, yet the physical brick-and-mortar stores were still there, and these firms were still operating. So the natural question is, what do they do? Where do they go? So this paper that I looked at, I looked at Ohio, the state of Ohio in 2008 imposed a rate limit that essentially banned payday lending. It was too low to be profitable. And what I noticed was while on paper, the number of licensed payday lenders dropped to zero, also on paper, the number of licensed pawnbrokers increased, the number of licensed small loan lenders increased, and that surprisingly, the number of second mortgage lenders increased as well. So this was maybe some cursory evidence that payday lenders were not extracting themselves from the market, but maybe finding different avenues to actually continue operation, either as a payday loan or in a similar industry like pawnbroking. And upon further investigation, I actually did find that payday lenders were choosing license types to allow for ban circumvention. So payday lenders were actually relicensing themselves as small loan lenders, which were still legal, but in practice continuing lending payday-like loans to the state of Ohio and to the citizens of Ohio. So they didn't go away, essentially. So they're basically doing the exact same thing that they used to, but with That's exactly a slightly right. different title. A different name. That's exactly right. So, you know, we can think about this as sort of a, a Hydra effect, but in <laughs> the lending market, right? The attempt was to ban payday lenders, but they found another means to operate. That was still technically legal. And being able to look at these licensing records allowed me to follow payday lenders as they evolved and as they chose different types of licenses. Uh, something that I want to do mention about this study and what caught my attention to look at this question further was, you know, I'm looking at 2008. So we're looking at the height of the financial crisis when the mortgage industry itself was severely contracting across the entire country. But on paper, it looked like the second mortgage industry was in a state of expansion in the state of Ohio. And that just didn't make sense, right? This is where we know what practically is going on in lending industries, but practically speaking, it was signaling something else. So the second mortgage industry looked like it was recovering. 
And it was just lenders trying to find a different way to still offer these short-term loans through some loophole that existed within the law. Really points out the reason to do the on-the-ground research versus just staring at the spreadsheet. Right. And the literal real-world implications of changes in policy and changes in, you know, what's going on economically across, you know, the U.S., that sort of thing. Right. Because it looks like payday lending is gone and that the mortgage industry is recovering, which those two things are absolutely false (laughs) in that time. So, yeah, it's really important to pick up on what just doesn't make sense and to investigate it. So you've also done other work looking at kind of how policy has shaped the way that payday loan offices work. Uh, And you've looked at whether new ones can come into business. Can you talk to me about the study that you did on that? So there are actually a couple that I can talk about. So the first one that I think is interesting is looking at sort of what happens when you have a market that sort of spills over into a different state, right? So my focus tends to be looking at state-level regulation, but the reality is is that we've got populations, for instance, here in Moscow and Pullman, where we can go and cross a state line to access a product that we may not have available in-state. And a study that I did with my co-author, Kate Harger, we found that there is this clustering and this expansion of the payday lending industry on state borders where the adjacent state actually prohibits payday lending products from being offered to the population. Something analogous to this particular study is looking at maybe marijuana laws or dry counties or dry states, for instance, that the industry will find these border markets and not only concentrate themselves in these markets, but the markets will grow with payday lenders operating and providing access to residents of states that don't have this access at all. I mean, I would think that wouldn't be unusual for almost any market that we're talking about. But yeah, it sounds like there's very much a a dichotomy of of what they want the policy to be and what the (laughs) real world reacts to that. And, you know, while intuitively we believe that this would be happening, it's a matter of looking at how severe this concentration actually is, right? It's one thing to say that the industry is there, but then how concentrated is it? And so that's kind of what this study does is it highlights, you know, not only are they there, but payday lenders are actively seeking out these sort of cross market or cross state markets because there essentially is no competition on the other side of the state. Customers have to go over and cross state lines to be able to access this product. So we know it's there, but it's just, you know, thinking about to what extent is the industry there. On lack of competition is almost never good. I'm sure there's examples. That's right. (laughs) Where it is, but like, yeah, (laughs) almost never good. And it's, it really sort of highlights just how, Arbitrary may not be the right word here, but how limiting state-level regulations can be. I'm not advocating for federal policy, but your state policy is only as good as your neighboring state's policy, for instance. Customers will find a way, the market will find a way to adjust and to allow for this market to exist. 
Well, so you said you've done a number of different studies sort of looking at these policy effects. Uh, What else have you uh, looked at? So I've looked at, one of my studies looks at the differences across states. Between 2000 and 2010, the payday lending industry itself was exploding and just becoming more and more concentrated. And states themselves were catching up to the industry, but at different rates and with different types of regulations. And so one of my papers does look at and exploit these differences in state-level policy. And there is a difference in behavior between incumbent firms or firms that are already operating within the industry and branches or firms that are looking to enter and become new competition. And it's really interesting because it really sort of flips the idea of all regulations are bad. It flips that idea on its head because whether you're already operating in the industry or you're trying to break into the industry, the regulation is going to have a different effect. And sometimes it benefits a new firm or an incumbent firm while having the opposite effect on the opposite type of firm. So for instance, when a state decides to adopt, say, a balance limit, so limiting the size of the actual loan, this adoption of policy of regulation actually is beneficial to branches that are already operating in the payday lending industry, while it actually is a negative effect on the number of firms trying to break in to the payday lending industry. So we have the same regulation and it's limiting, right? It's limiting the size of the loan that actually is beneficial to incumbent firms and incumbent branches. So I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So you have to have smaller loans. So why does that help the incumbent businesses versus the trying to break in businesses? Right. So it's going to help the incumbent firms. Number one, it reduces the risk of loss associated with a default loan, for instance, you know, the negative impact on a firm of defaulting of a small loan that has defaulted is significantly lower than, say, a larger $2,000 loan. And so it, it sort of insulates the firm from these really, really high impact defaults. Interestingly, as well, limiting the size of the loan actually has an effect on the borrower behavior as well. Borrowers tend to default less on smaller loans than they do on higher loans, that a smaller loan is perhaps perceived to be easier to pay off, whereas a higher loan, you know, is perceived to be sort of a sunk cost. And borrowers tend to be able to walk away from those a lot more than a smaller loan. So it changes consumer behavior and it protects the firm. And so for a firm that's already in operation, that's fantastic. But for a new branch that's trying to break into the industry, it limits profit potential. It limits revenue potential because pricing is based on the size of the loan. And obviously, you know, the types of customers that are needing this loan as well, you're limiting who can actually borrow because you're limiting the size of the loan. So from here, you've done quite a bit of work on dissecting some of the lender's characteristics. What are kind of the questions that all of this is unearthed for you that you want to tackle next? That's a great question. First, I think there's still so much more to understand 
about payday lending firms and the supply side of alternative financial services in general. One study that I'm in the middle of right now is looking at the effect of time on decisions. So in a practical sense, we know that policy very much leads. It sends this this preview signal as to what an environment is going to look like, especially for an industry. And so to what extent does this policy lead, you know, are payday lending branches or payday lending firms preemptively changing the way they operate or preemptively leaving a state because they are looking into the future, right, with these policy signals. Even if a bill fails, you know, there is still potential effect, the fact that this bill was introduced at the state, right, to either ban or limit the practice of payday lending. So that's on the supply side, which I think has a real sort of interesting potential in understanding the relationship between policy and industry. On the consumer side, while there's still a lot that is being researched about consumer outcomes, I'd like to look sort of backwards at the consumer, not necessarily what are the effects of borrowing a payday loan, but what are the conditions that actually lead to borrowing a payday loan? Decisions, you know, are coming from conditions that a borrower is faced with and are these conditions because of a lack of credit or because of a lack of liquidity? Is there a lack of participation in a traditional market, for instance? There, there are a lot of questions, but it turns the transaction into something different, right? Not as a given, but as a result of other potential market conditions in other markets. So looking even farther upstream of where you're going. Right. That's right. Is payday lending a symptom of another problem, for instance? Well, I think it'll be interesting for all the economists who study this to look back, uh, especially at what we're going through right now, to see if all of COVID-19 and the pandemic and the economic recession and oh, everything yeah. mimics or is similar to perhaps the housing market crash and, and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Oh, there are parallels for sure. <laughs> That's true. So much to keep you busy. <laughs> which is good. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad that I could talk about this. If you found the intricacies of Stephanie's research interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. With support of the legislature, Governor Brad Little has signed a bill providing the $3 million needed to start the renovation and expansion of U of I's Agricultural Research Station near Parma. These funds, along with $3 million from industry partners and $1 million from U of I, will expand the research capacity to further address the needs of Idaho's farmers, and the modern facility will help attract more world-class faculty. Fire scientist Luigi Buschetti and his colleagues have developed a web portal that provides country-level fire activity statistics across numerous years. It is the first global fire data portal developed for policy support, so the researchers expect the data sets to be used in national fire assessments and to support wildfire management and risk reduction. As a student in the Idaho Whammy Medical Education Program, Megan Bull uses a wheelchair, has limited motion in her arms, and performs fine motor skills with a bionic glove. College of Engineering students developed an assistive CPR device for Megan with application across a spectrum of users with limited arm strength or other disabilities. All right, that's it for today. 
thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. You can check out our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, to learn more about Stephanie's work. Look through our show notes and email me with comments. Most importantly, you can subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Great reviews, too. And help spread the word about the great research being done at U of I by telling your friends and family about the podcast. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me. 